Hey everybody, this is comedian John Hepburn, and you're listening to P.S. Paper Court. Hello there, I'm P.F., this is my tape recorder. Coming up, comedian-actor Dave Keckner. And then there's the point where there was some job I was up for and I didn't get it. And uh, I thought, you know what? I don't want to ever be without a job. So I called my agent and I said, can you put me on the road? Now, if you had said the name Dave Keckner to me last week, I would have been like, I'm not sure I know who that is. And as soon as I saw his picture and you'll do the same thing, you're like, oh yeah, literally one of those guys that's been in everything. Uh, most notably The Office as uh, Todd Packer. Michael Scott's best friend, and also an anchorman, but he's been in tons and tons and tons of stuff, and we're going to talk to him in just a little bit. Song of the Week is from Pale Waves, who have a new album out as of this past Friday. But first, we have a dumb bit. It's Facebook, not Factbook, involving our president, but it's not exactly what you think. Here we go. Time now for... It's Facebook, not Factbook. So there's this outfit called The Other 98%, and my progressive friends post things from it all the time, and I think they're pretty accurate, but uh, this one I don't think is. Well, I know it's not. I'm going to explain why. It says it shows our president being grumpy, and it says in 1990, as part of the United States Football League, Trump sued, emphasis, the NFL for $1.2 billion in damages. He won $3.76, and a lifetime banned emphasis from the NFL. Get it now? Well, Snopes looked into this, and they said it was a mixture of truth, um, partially true, and that is pretty accurate. Uh, Me knowing something about defunct leagues and the United States Football League in particular, I'm going to give you this story, hopefully in a nutshell, and not geek out too much about it. Uh, So what happened was uh, the United States Football League was started in 1982. The idea had been around for a long time. Play football in the spring because a lot of people don't like baseball, and a lot of people love football, so why not have football when the NFL is in its offseason? So a guy named David Dixon from New Orleans, it was his idea to start the league. The league starts, uh, kicks off in 1983, in March of 1983. David Dixon does not have a team in the league. Uh, they're using his plan. He has an option to get a team later on. Uh, that becomes important. Hold on to that thought. Uh, one of the teams in the league is called the New Jersey Generals. They're owned by a man named J. Walter Duncan. He's an oil man from Oklahoma. Now, Uh, It is believed, uh, there's no documentation of this anywhere, but it is fairly well believed that Donald Trump was invited to be one of the original owners in the United States Football League, and he declined. He did not like the the setup of it, so uh, he declines. But... 1984 rolls around, and uh, J. Walter Duncan, tired of going from Oklahoma to New Jersey to see his team, wants to get out. So he sells the team to Donald Trump, who uh, is now suddenly interested in the United States Football League. And uh, then all of a sudden... Uh, as soon as he gets the team, he starts making some high-level signings. Signs Herschel Walker. He signs Brian Sipe away from my Cleveland Browns and uh, makes a big splash for the league. He will later sign uh, Doug Flutie, uh, and that, that becomes a big deal. And uh, the, the problem is is that the David Dixon plan called for the owners to not sign people like that and, and spend crazy amounts of money on salaries. Use people that were in the NFL or were close to getting into the NFL and kind of like building slowly. But uh, Trump throws all that out the window, but it should be noted he is not the only one that does that. And he wasn't even the first one to do that, by the way. Uh, other guys started spending money kind of crazy. But anyway, so September of 84, um, the deal closes for him to uh, buy the—in 83, I'm sorry, September 83, the deal closes for him to buy the generals. And by 1984, he is pushing for a move to fall. And uh, he is saying that all the other owners are with him, and they're really not. 
but eventually they will be, except for one guy, one guy named John Bassett. He's a Canadian businessman. He was involved in something called the World Football League in the 70s. It played one season in 74, half a season in 75, and folded largely because the people in it did not have the money to really be in the football business, with the exception of John Bassett. He was one of the people that actually had the, the, the deep pockets to sustain enough losses until the league was successful, which it ultimately never was. That becomes important later, too. Hold on. So, uh, finally, Trump convinces everybody that this is the way to go, again, except for John Bassett. And John Bassett really dislikes Donald Trump. And Don, John Bassett's a Canadian, okay? And he sends, this is a famous note, you can Google this, he sends a famous memo out to Donald Trump threatening to punch him in the face at the next league meeting if he doesn't quit it, basically. So, uh, Bassett fights tooth and nail. We're not moving to the spring. Trump says, oh, we are moving to the spring, and he gets more and more guys to uh, go along with him. Now, this is explained in detail uh, by Jeff Perlman in his book, Football for a Buck. You can also go to the Good Seats Available podcast, uh, hosted by my friend Tim Hanlon, and uh, get a really good overview on this. He, he explains a lot of what's going on in a lot more de- detail than I'm giving you right now. Uh, I'm not trying not to geek out too much on you here, so do check that out. And then also... Um, so we're back to Bassett and Trump uh, fighting back and forth. The owners slowly starting to side with Trump because here's the thing, as Perlman explains, is that these guys were told at the beginning, you're going to lose a lot of money in the USFL until the league gets successful. And that's easy to hear on paper or look at on paper. But as Perlman points out, once you start losing money, it's a, it's a, it's a lot different. So Trump basically uh, tells these guys, we're going to sue the NFL for antitrust. And this, by the way, is not an entirely horrible idea. But they're going to sue for antitrust, and then I think the upshot he's trying to sell them is that then we're going to get into the NFL because, like the American Football League back in the 60s, the NFL will sue for peace, and we'll all be NFL owners, and we'll be rich. And if you're losing a lot of money, and there's a golden goose at the end of the rainbow, you're going to believe it. And so he convinced all these guys to do that, again, except for John Bassett. Sadly, uh, and but fortunately for Donald Trump, John Bassett passes away of uh, brain cancer. So his biggest opposition is removed, uh, and the guy that takes over the Tampa Bay Bandits jumps right in with Trump and says, yeah, we're going to do this. So they sue the NFL in 1984 for antitrust violations, largely because the NFL has all of the TV networks locked up for uh, the TV contracts, which the USFL is, going to, USFL is going to need in the fall of 1986 if it's going to make its move into the fall of 1986, which, by the way, I think they have no intention of ever doing. Now, suing the NFL for antitrust, not a bad idea because the NFL is engaging in antitrust. Uh, not really because of the TV contract, but they're meddling with um, the USFL players, and they're conducting all kind of business to put the USFL out of business, largely because, as with any rival league that comes along to challenge an established league, it's driving up salaries. So that's the reason the NFL wants the USFL out of business. But... Unfortunately, uh, on their side is now Donald Trump is the one pushing the lawsuit. That it's the league that's suing the, the USFL sues the NFL. Trump is the face of the league, basically, especially after John Bassett passes away. And even though there's a commissioner in place, Trump is the face of the USFL. And unfortunately, he takes the stand in the trial. And so, while the case is proven that the uh, NFL is engaging in antitrust activities against the USFL, uh, Trump it looks like a buffoon and a bully and an idiot. And that is why, ultimately, the league is awarded, is they win the case, but they're awarded only $3 in damages because, as the jury explains, uh, they're their own worst enemy. And not just Trump. Again, Trump has help, although if it isn't for Trump, I don't think these idiots go on the suicide mission. I think they would have toughed it out. I think some guys would have gotten out. And in 1986, you would have seen a USFL 
that has uh, that had fewer teams because while no teams folded during a USFL season, they did invite some guys in in 84, expanded by six teams to refill their coffers. They brought in some guys that definitely, especially in San Antonio, uh, did not have the money or the deep pockets to sustain, like much like the World Football League did be in the football business. But had it had not been for Trump, I think the, other, the other guys would have toughed it out. You would have had spring football in 86. And uh, they, if they would have won the lawsuit against the NFL, I still think they should have sued the NFL. But it wouldn't have been with this you know, hope of like, oh, well, we'll be in the NFL now. Well, and uh, Carl Peterson, who has uh, been a general manager in the National Football League, uh, explains that uh, when the trial was moving forward, uh, there was a proposal uh, for a deal. There were a couple offers of the possibility of a couple teams merging into the NFL over a period of time. Uh, but whatever was offered obviously was not enough for the majority of the league. But basically, the thing was, is that the NFL, even before all of this, this is back in 1984, they did not want Donald Trump to be an owner. I mean, it's bad enough they ended up getting Jerry Jones, who's basically Donald Trump with a draw sometimes. But uh, they did not want Trump in the league then. They did not want him in the league now. A couple of years ago, before he ran for president, the Buffalo Bills went up for sale, and Trump tried to buy the Bills. And uh, he, I think he gave up when he realized he would never get the approval of the owners. He probably made up some jive. Oh, I don't want to be in Buffalo. Anyway, I forget what his reason was for not buying the Bills. The real reason was he would not have gotten approval of the other NFL owners. And that's a fact. So to sum up, it's my personal belief. And I'd, I'd like to discuss this with uh, Tim, uh, my friend Tim Hanlon, and then Jeff Perlman, the, uh, the author of Football for a Buck. But it's my opinion that the USFL... The owners that wanted to go to spring in 1986 had no intention of playing a down of football in 1986. They thought they were going to win this lawsuit, which they did, and the billion dollars, but they would not see the billion dollars. The NFL would think, oh, shoot, even though they would have appealed it, they would have thought, well, it's probably just easier to make these guys a deal and absorb the remaining eight teams in the USFL, which, by the way, they would not have absorbed all eight teams. Uh, my guess is they would have absorbed Jacksonville, Birmingham, Memphis, and Baltimore. Maybe other guys would go, well, they'll buy me out. They, they, they make me go away. I don't know. But anyway, that's my personal feeling on that matter. But like I said, this is brought up a lot uh, to do as an example of the president's buffoonery. And while it is mostly accurate, I, I do agree with Jeff Perlman. Uh, while Trump was the, the leading uh, uh, proponent of going to fall and probably this, the one guy you can pin the destruction of the USFL on, he did have help, and he did fool a bunch of other guys who should have been smarter than you know to, to go along with him, uh, you know, then and and destroy this league. But you know, what are you going to do? So check out, uh, like I said, check out that book, Football for a Buck, uh, my friend Tim Hanlon's uh, podcast. Good seat still available. And also, if you want to, another uh, side plug here, an unofficial sponsor today, FunWhileItLasted.net. Uh, if you're interested in defunct sports leagues, boy, oh boy, <clears throat> talk about a rabbit hole. You go look at that and all kinds of teams, uh, leagues and things like that. People have written essays about and their stats and everything. Oh, it's, it's crazy. So anyway, back to the meme that was on the other 98%. Um, you know, like I've said before, and I know this is a Facebook algorithm that just works this way, but, you know, when my progressive friends post stuff, they're usually more accurate than my conservative friends. I say it's about 75, 25. But then again, that could just be the way the Facebook algorithm works. Maybe Facebook wants to show me BS from the other side. I don't know. But in this case, uh, the other 98%, yeah, you got to keep in mind. It's Facebook, not Factbook. Hey 
David Koechner is a comedian and actor you've probably seen in, amongst other things, The Office and Anchorman, as well as tons and tons of other stuff. He's a working actor who wanted to, uh, well, increase his income, so he started doing stand-up comedy. And here now is our interview with Dave Koechner. I was going to say, you know, you're one of those guys, they always, you know, they, they always say this about different, you know, actors and actresses, you know, you're the guy from that thing, but you really are one of those guys from that thing. Uh, when I saw you were coming, I'm like, oh, how do I know him? And I didn't know immediately. I'm like, oh, yeah, The Office. And I started looking, and I'm like, oh, all this stuff I know you from, so. Oh, that's funny. How old are you? Uh, I'm 52. Oh, my. So I know you from I'm a lot of stuff. Younger. Oh, thank you. Well, so I know you from a lot of stuff, basically. <laughs> and, yeah. uh uh, so, did the stand-up come first? Because uh, I I knew you more as an actor, uh, even though I no fall- the stand-up came uh, later. Okay. After I had five kids. Oh, okay. I had to ensure there would always be food, and this way you essentially it's, it's another business, you know. Yeah. You don't have to, you don't have to wait on anybody else to have employment or beg. You know, it gives you know, it gives you some independence. Plus, it's a lot of fun. Cool. And uh, where are you from originally? I grew up in central Missouri, a place called Tipton, T-I-P-T-O-N. Small town, 2,000 people, right right there. It's, it's uh, north of the Lake of the Ozarks. That seems to be a geographical landmark people have some understanding of. Okay. And so were you always interested in acting? and or did the acting? Well, I think so, but it's hard to define because I had no real touchstone with that. I mean, growing up in a small town, I'd never met an actor. Uh, didn't know how one would go about that. Uh, this is obviously pre-internet and pre-cable, pre-satellite. You only have two or three channels. So I, you can't even dream about how that would come to fruition. Uh, I think I secretly kind of wanted to be an actor, but, you know, there's no resource. So I, uh, my first foray into acting, I guess, was uh, my major was poli-sci. Okay, yeah, I just talked to, um, who did I talk to? Just the other, another comedian that was a poli-sci major, and uh, he just did it just to find out how politics worked. He always wanted to be a comedian, so, ah. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, my, my, my act is not at all political. But uh, so, but did it give you like you know uh, any notions of you know uh, did it have any kind of benefit I guess to uh, to, to comedy well, or to acting or you know it gives you a liberal arts education which is a great benefit. Uh, I think it also let me know that that's not what I wanted to do. By the time I got to my third year of uh, studies in political science, I realized I didn't want to be a lawyer or a teacher, and uh, I probably wasn't cut out cut out for a life in politics. So. Um... When did the acting really take off then? Did you start doing, was it in college or was it? Uh... No, well, I left college and then I, uh, when I was 24, I, um, I kicked around Columbia, Missouri, where the University of Missouri was for a, a year or two after college. And then I visited a friend at the Second City in Chicago and I saw that they taught classes and it's kind of like a bell went off. And I realized, oh, that's how a person gets here. Because I was with well, Second City having read a lot of books about Saturday Night Live. And so I knew a lot of alumni had come from there, a lot of the cast members. So um, I went home and worked for a year, saved all my money, and then uh, moved to Chicago. Aha. Uh-huh. And then see. So started, started 
start taking classes in a place called the I.O. and uh, the Second City simultaneously. Okay. And from there, the rest was, uh, you know, that was the track. There you go. So I, I did uh, sketch and improv for years and then uh, got hired by the Second City and then got seen by Saturday Night Live and then after that moved to L.A. and I've been very fortunate to work ever since. That's cool. So how did the stand-up come um, uh, into all this? Oh, let's see. After our fifth child... Um, I just wanted to ensure that I always have viable income. And I've been doing long-term improv with a group of friends in town, but it's hard to get everybody together. And this way, it's, you know, it's a solo endeavor, so you can go out and do it yourself. And then there's the point where there was some job I was up for, and I didn't get it. And uh, I thought, you know what? I don't want to ever be without a job. So I called my agent. and I said, can you put me on the road? Because I've always done live theater and live entertainment, you know, and so the next day she called and she had 11 gigs for me. Now, they were three months out. My first one was to be, you know, three months away. So I just worked up an act in town, uh, put a bunch of character pieces together and put together an hour and uh, then went on the road with it. So I've been working on that ever since. And it's honed down now. It's not necessarily character based anymore. It's more family based because I have a wife and five kids and we're both from families of six kids so that's kind of informing my this particular um show which i call symphony of chaos Uh uh-huh that's basically what my life is right now so was it uh kind of odd coming into stand-up that way instead of like kind of working away from the open mics like like folks do or was it you know since you'd been on stage so much it was just kind of just shifting gears slightly you ask is it kind of odd i have no idea because that's the way i did it okay Uh, it's, it's it's you know i mean i was fortunate that i got the headline right away i didn't have to you know work my way up to the stand up ranks but in a way i already had i'd already put in all the work the stage work i had put in all the years of doing comedy so um in a way i you know arrived where i was and so on the acting side, since you've been in so many things, uh, do you have to audition a lot, or are you at a point where people say, you know what we need for this role would be perfect, would be Dave? Uh, that's, yeah, it's uh, certainly less than I used to. Uh, it's project to project. And really, that's what it all comes down to. I mean, you know, if it's a huge movie, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. It's, it's very specific. And it was the Honestly, op- if it's a drama, they're going to want to see if I can do it. Oh, okay. Uh, but if it's a comedy, it's like, you know, you either want me or you don't. So how did, was the office like that? Did you go in an audition for that? Or did they kind of a notion that they wanted you for that role? No, they had, uh, they had, this is the first season. The first season, there were only six episodes, I believe. And this was the second or third episode. They were introducing Michael Scott's friend, Todd Packer. And I think they had hired an actor and it just wasn't working. I had happened to be out of town shooting snakes on a plane. I got back to town and they contacted me because Steve had said, how about Kepner? And so that's how that came about. Uh-huh. And so uh, getting back to the comedy, do you, uh, do you have a chance to work on that a lot between, because I guess there's a lot of downtime in acting. Uh, do you work on a lot of your stand-up then or just kind of as you have time to, or how, what's the process like for that? As, as I have time to, I have a pretty busy life. I'm very blessed in that I work quite a bit. Um, uh, it's really hard to parse your brain into thinking one way or the other if you're, if you're 
what I call my acting mode, it's hard to think about stand-up. And if I'm doing stand-up, I don't generally think about acting. Um, so I've got a three-week stretch here, which is nice, so I can focus completely on stand-up. Uh, I'm doing, um, let's see, Des Moines, and then Syracuse, and then Cincinnati. I believe that's the schedule for September. Um, but other than that, you know, it's it's family time or whatever. You know, I do a lot of voiceover work as well. I'm doing uh, episodes of The Goldbergs and uh, the new spinoff from The Goldbergs called Schooled. Um, so I stay pretty busy. Oh, so what are you going to do on The Goldbergs? What's... Uh, I've been doing a character called Bill Lewis, which is there's a uh, Barry, who's the oldest boy, has a girlfriend named Lainey, and I'm her father. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm just getting caught up on that in reruns. So ah. they rerun it after the 10 o'clock news here, and I happen to have that oh. on. So I've just left it on. Oh, oh I like that. And, um, okay, cool. Uh, Brian Kalan has been on our show, too. Uh, oh, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, he's got a, that new spin-off exactly. called School. Yeah. Which is set in the 90s. There you go. I'm very happy yeah. for that guy. He's very funny. He's in, my, my, he's, he's in our favorite yeah, very, episode. Very good, dude. He is. And he's, he's in our favorite episode of Frasier, the one where the uh, two morning zoo guys... Uh, harass Frazier and he's oh I have, I have not seen that and he is yeah he's very funny he is either Carlos or the chicken I can't remember which character he <laughs> is but he's very funny in that um, so what other things do you do when like you're not doing you know, acting uh, and or stand up comedy well let's see husband there's duties there father there's duties there when I can I go hang with my friends but uh, let's see Margot is in her junior year so I'm trying to help her stay on top of her studies Charlie got into the American Academy of Dramatic Art. Uh, he doesn't really care for my help, though I <laughs> always try to lend it anyway. Sergeant is in flag football, so we're doing that. And uh, Audrey is doing volleyball. And Eve does uh, gymnastics, but she likes to play all the other sports. Oh, she, no, she's doing soccer. I'm sorry. So, you know, uh, that's your, your life. So if you've got extra time, let's go throw a ball. <laughs> so the oldest is how old? Charlie's 19. Okay, and the youngest is? Seth. Uh, so you've got a pretty good range in there. Yeah. Yeah. We're, yeah. We, we've just started the, uh, well, we only have two, but the, the second has just started high school. So uh, we're, we're finishing off that, and we're, we're four years away from being empty nesters. Well, less than four. Well, over four. I don't know if I'll ever be an empty nester. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's hard to imagine. I know people have gone through it, and it's like, uh, you know, some people it's great, and other people it's like, now what do we do? <laughs> Eve won't be gone for another uh, uh, 11 years. So are there projects, speaking of, because, you know, as life marked is on, are there are projects or things that you've uh, wanted to do but haven't ha- had a chance to do yet, or are you pretty happy just doing the things you're doing and just doing more of them? No, I'm always trying to develop projects. Uh, you know, that's the difficult thing. You might write a script and it goes nowhere, or you start writing a script with another writer friend and either... either doesn't uh, go further or, you know, you're, you both get busy doing something else. So I've got several projects that are, you know, half completed movies, uh, TV shows. I've also pitched a couple different TV shows waiting to hear back. Uh, if there's any possibilities for those types of things, uh, you know, networks and studios get very specific about what they're looking for year to year changes. So something that might be appealing one year might not be appealing the next. So does it help, though, that there's all these different platforms now? Because now, that, you know, like you said, when we were growing up, there was basically the three channels and there was the fourth uh, after oh, a yeah. while. Without a doubt. It's a, certainly advantageous to actors. There's all kinds of jobs. 
Uh, yeah, but it, it, is it trickier though too? Because you have to kind of be more. You have to find an audience, but you have to find kind of that dedicated audience. Well, that's not my job. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you're, you know, when, I, you're when you're developing, I can only do my thing. Yeah. I can't control whether or not people watch it. You hope they do. Uh, you know, you can promote it all you want. And people are either going to dig it or they're not. I was thinking of more terms when you're developing ideas and you said like you're writing scripts and stuff like that. Do you? Oh, well, I can only write what I think is funny or what makes me laugh or what makes me happy. I, I can't necessarily write comedy on assignment. I mean, I guess I would if, 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 if they pay me. So what kind of things do make you laugh that wouldn't necessarily people would wouldn't people would necessarily guess from from your your stand up act? Cuz I like, you know, a lot of physical comedy, but I can't do physical comedy. Um, uh-huh. when it's done right. I mean, when it's do- well, I'll I'll just give you the things I loved when I was growing up. Okay. The, the Marx Brothers, Evan Costello, early Saturday Night Live, uh, um, Monty Python, those are my favorites. Yeah, we uh spoke to John Cleese uh last year. Uh, about wow. Holy Grail, yeah, he was out. Uh, he would they would show um, uh, Holy Grail, and then he would take uh, uh, questions and stuff. That's a big, that's a popular thing guys are doing now. But Shatner's doing the same thing with Star Trek too. Um, oh, is that right? Well, uh, I know that Cleese uh, had a one man show. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. That I was never saw it. I was out of town when it came through uh, L.A. Uh, did you get a chance to see that? I did not. No, that was. Um, I don't think he came to Cincinnati with that, but he came to Cincinnati with the Holy Grail thing. So, well, how was it? Was it well attended? I hope. Uh, I believe so. Yeah. What's really weird about the, that movie? I've always thought is that I always thought the parts that people found funny weren't particularly funny, and the parts I found funny, nobody ever talks about. Everybody always talks about oh, the Black Knight, and and while that that's <laughs> funny, my favorite scene is when they're trying to determine who how a witch is a witch. And right. Cleese is in that scene, and he yeah. very shyly says, we, be, be, because they're made of wood? <laughs> that just cracks me up every time. And My favorite is Dennis the Constitutional Peasant. Yes! Yeah, I was just going to say, the Britons, who are they? <laughs> we are all Britons. Honestly, that, that gave me a, a keen interest in politics. I was going to say, yeah. That probably fit in right with, uh, with, with what you were studying. Um, yeah. Well, I wasn't at the time. I was 13 yeah. when I saw it. Well, yeah, yeah. It really piqued my interest. Yeah, it, it's interesting too how like old woman, I'm a man. <laughs> old woman, I'm a man. Sorry, I am your king, but I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Um, <laughs> another uh, a movie I think is actually funnier though is uh, is Life of Brian. I agree with you. It's a better movie. Yes. Uh, you know, we could we could go back and forth about what's funnier, but as a movie, Life of Brian is, is more complete. Uh, it, you know, it has a, a more typical beginning, middle, and end True. plot points, uh, and each scene builds on another. And I will say that the acting is really fantastic. If you watch that film, every character, though they all play multiple characters, they all have a very specific uh, desire or want or need in each scene, and they all are really going after it, not just doing, you know, comedy bits. Yes. They're really invested as characters. It's really remarkable. It's certainly one of my favorites. Yeah. So, so when you watch stuff like that growing up, did you kind of learn from that and, and like, oh, okay, that's how you structure, structure things? Because when I did, you know, comedy writing on the radio and stuff, yeah, I drew on that kind of stuff a lot to be like, oh, there's what's what, even what a setup and punchline was. I didn't, I didn't realize that I knew what it was until I, I, I didn't. I didn't think of those terms because I was I was you know a freshman in high school. Sure. So I wasn't. There wasn't comedy writing to be done. It wasn't. There was no purpose for it. Uh, you know. 
We didn't do sketches at school. There was, you know, one play a year. That was it. You didn't do, there was no place in town to put up material. There was no venue for which to write. Uh, so, but when you finally did start doing it, did it help that you, since you kind of like have, you have an understanding of all the different ways the way it works, is that kind of helpful to the overall process? Because you, you know, you have the, the acting perspective, but you also have the writing perspective. Does that kind of help or are they just, just separate disciplines and you do them one at a time? That's a lot of different questions. <laughs> well, I, mean, I think just having an overall... I, I, would say, I would say my entire performance life and my education and my work in career life uh, continues to inform how I write or perform. I, I declare that we all get better every time we put pen to page or finger to key or foot on stage. You know, uh, one of my favorite things to recommend people when they go, hey, I want to be an actor, what should I do? Well, the first thing you notice is that they're really wanting you, you to say, I validate you and think you should do it. Yeah. I don't have any care about whether a person does it or not. But I, the only advice I ever give is read Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, that's interesting. It's a theory of success, the 10,000 hours theory. Yeah. So if you're willing to put 10,000 hours into something, you probably have a pretty good chance of mastering it. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that. So that that's what it is. It's about doing the work. It's not about, you know, getting your balls hit on a YouTube channel and then you're a star. That's true. That, that's, uh, I guess the other thing was, I uh, found This American Life, by Ira, I think Ira Glass was talking about the same thing, was talking about Gladwell's book, say, go out and do something and suck at it for a long time, and, yeah. th- and then you'll get good at it. Well, you, you'll know if you have a proclivity for it. True. You know? Yeah. Some people don't seem to notice that they're not having success and, and stay at it, and some people are quite successful quickly um and, oh and one last question i was uh, uh, forgot to ask this early when we were discussing the what you were talking about on stage it just popped back into my head does the family uh, ever get bothered by the things you talk about are they encouraged like yeah that's he's, he's talking about no they roll, they roll their eyes when i tell them <laughs> they might be the center of a certain um uh story i tell uh, go, dad my son has seen my act so because he's older so he's the only one that's actually seen it Oh, okay. He like he likes it. He goes, yeah, that was good, Dad. <laughs> Is there a particular bit that's a favorite of yours you've been doing that you've been telling for a long time? A particular story or uh, or something? Uh, that- some of them are a little longer. I, I try to keep it as fresh as possible. You know, every show has its own possibility. I always leave room in every show for something to happen. Uh, you hope no show is exactly the same. Um, constitutionally, you want it to be the same uh but i always allow for it to go off the rails or wherever it needs to go to find some fun well cool man sounds like a lot of uh great uh, family uh i guess pg pg 13 kind of fun <laughs> i'd say 13 yeah it's, it's you know there's, there's some swearing and cursing it's not a filthy dirty show not to say there aren't um a few moments in the show that i don't necessarily want to do in front of Young children, that's sure. For sure. Well, cool, man. Well, appreciate you taking the time. This will be uh, in print and online in City Beat, and then the podcast episode will drop in a couple of weeks. I'm kind of stacking some interviews as we go into the fall as it gets busier and busier. But uh, it was good talking to you. Uh, always enjoy- enjoyed your work on Bishop about everything I see you in. Well, thank you, friend. Right. Hey, if you come to the show, make sure you say hello. Will do. Thanks, Dave. All right. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks. Thank you, brother. Bye-bye.
thanks again to Dave Kackner for being on the show. What a fascinating guy, right? So he's going to be, let me see where here, he's going to be in Syracuse, New York at the Funny Bone, September 21st through the 23rd. He's in Cincinnati, September 28th through the 30th, October 11th through the 13th. He's in Rochester, New York, and then November 1st through the 3rd in Albany, New York at the Funny Bone there. For all things Dave Keckner, just go to davidkechner.com. Keckner is K-O-E-C-H-N-E-R, pretty much how it sounds. So, all right, that brings us, I uh, believe, to the song of the week. Oh, first, of course, our, our usual plugs. I want to plug uh, Nearly Liza's YouTube channel. Go check that out. Funny stories uh, from a kid that's actually going through. These aren't memories. These are recent memories of, of a kid struggling uh, through middle school and now starting high school. And it's funny stuff. I want you to also go to Check Check Hayes' blog. Uh, latest post uh, you're going to really enjoy. I will uh, let you be surprised by that. Um, let me see. What else do we have? Uh, oh, I mentioned back in the dumb bit, I want you to go to check out Good Seats Still Available podcast if you're one of those nerds that likes uh, defunct sports leagues or even just any sports history. It isn't all defunct sports leagues. Uh, he also talks about you know the way things used to be in the NFL, Major League Baseball, and things like that. Check that out. And then go to Fun Wall at Lasted website, funwallatlasted.net for stories about defunct teams. Boy, talk about a rabbit hole. You could spend days there if you're into that kind of thing. All right, that brings us now to the song of the week. Pale Wave's new album is called My Mind Makes Noises. Of course, uh, these kids were kind of uh, coming off the tails of 1975, who produced uh, the first couple of singles anyway. The entire album is out now. It's called My Mind Makes Noises. Uh, they have a new single out, which I'm not sure what the newest single is. That came out the same day as the album, but uh, Radio 1 has been playing 18 a lot. I think that's a, a really outstanding track. So I'm going to play 18 for you. They are touring the country. We're going to see them, hopefully, in October here in Cincinnati. In the meantime, I want you to enjoy uh, the song 18. The first couple singles really did sound 1975-ish because they were produced by the 1975, or two of the guys, Matt and one of the other guys from 1975, produced the first couple of singles. They're starting to develop their own sound now, and uh, this is really evident on 18. That's our song of the week on PS Tape Recorder. So long, and thanks for listening. Sat on the call.